Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you where I'm going to dive into a topic that has gotten some momentum online in the last couple of weeks, and it has to do with performance related to nutrition. So an ongoing conversation that I've had on this podcast that has also taken place to some degree within the endurance world is this idea of like a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet versus a more traditional model of a moderate to high carbohydrate diet and how that impacts performance. It's interesting because I think it requires a lot of nuance, partly because when we use the word endurance, we're using that as an umbrella term to cover such a wide range of events. It almost becomes a question that requires further investigation. And it's going to be a big difference when we're talking about, say, endurance at the like shorter end of the spectrum versus the longer end of the spectrum. Or in other words, like say a three kilometer race versus a effort where you see how far you can run in 24 hours or something like that. So that's where the conversation has gone. A lot of times is like, well, what are we talking about when we say endurance? One thing though, that tends to be a common theme is that as you get into these shorter endurance events that require a moderate to higher intensity for that particular event, we see a reduction in performance when someone implants a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet in a lot of the research today. So most of this stuff requires further investigation, or at least it's called for that. And recently a study came out that looked actually specifically at higher intensity endurance training to compare high fat, low carbohydrate and higher carbohydrate dietary practices to further investigate whether there's a performance difference or performance advantage to the high carbohydrate diet. And the results may surprise you a bit. I have some thoughts about what they maybe mean and what they possibly don't mean in the sense that like, what were the limitations of this study compared to what you would see in maybe a real life training program, or at least some common real life training programs. So for this episode, I'm going to go through this study and look at kind of the findings and then share with you what my thoughts are and where you can possibly consider using or not using some of these things or the way you maybe think about it. Before we get rolling here though, just a couple quick announcements for you. If you want to check out some of the episodes, ad-free early release, you can do that by supporting the show through the show's Patreon page. You can access the show's Patreon page by heading over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. That is also where you'll find the full catalog of previous episodes, details, links, and everything that goes with them and other ways to support the show. If you want to support the show other ways, one way that goes a long ways is when you find an episode you like, sharing it with your friends, family, and followers on social media if you don't mind doing that. So head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO for all those details. If you are interested in some coaching services, I've got a variety of pre-made plans that kind of follow my philosophy for a range of different disciplines from five kilometers all the way up through hundred miles, multiple ability levels for each. 
So if you need some guidance, those can be a good option. If you want a little more support though, want to work with me directly, you can also sign up for individualized coaching where you can scale that all the way up to frequent communication. Also, if you just want to chat about something, a topic, questions, things like that, you can sign up for consultations on my website, zachbitter.com. Also, if you want to meet up in person and happen to be in the Austin area, I help host a group run on Sunday mornings. We meet at Metz Park. Main group starts at 9 a.m. We also have a smaller group at 8 a.m. that does either a four-mile or six-mile running loop, or if you want to come out with a little bit of a leisure leisurely pace and do some walking. We also have a two mile out and back option for folks. It's open to everybody, all inclusive, run, walk, bring your family, stroller, dog, whatever. Everything is everyone's welcome with it. So uh come out there and check that out if you haven't been in the Austin area and want to get in some early morning exercise on a Sunday morning. Before we get rolling, just a quick shout out to one of the show's primary sponsors this year. Element T electrolytes. They are my go-to electrolyte supplement. They make a very convenient product that has these little packets that include 1000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Last year, I got my sweat test done and it turns out I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid lost during a workout or throughout the day. So I'll usually mix one of those packets in about two liters of water. If I'm going out for training sessions, I'll also use their chocolate flavor sometimes in the morning with my coffee. It makes a perfect mix. If I use like maybe half a packet of that, some coffee, some heavy cream hits the spot, sends me out to my morning session, ready to roll. Uh, they are currently running a special for HPO podcast listeners, which is a free sample packet with any purchase. So if you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you will be prompted to receive that free sample pack with your first purchase. So what that'll allow you to do is figure out, first of all, if you enjoy the product, and second of all, which flavor is your favorite. My favorites right now, chocolate with that coffee in the morning and watermelon for any of my fluids that I'm drinking throughout the day or out on workouts. So if that's any help for you, those would be a good starting points in my opinion. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to check out their stuff. You can also access those links in the show notes or on the show sponsor website, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. The title of the study is called Low and High Carbohydrate Isochloric Diets on Performance, Fat Oxidation, Glucose, and Cardiometabolic Health in Middle-Age Males. It jumps in giving a little bit of a background on the historical research, which is in kind of just a fairly short summary, just suggests that exercise of increasing intensity becomes increasingly dependent on carbohydrate oxidation since fat oxidation effectively ceases at any exercise intensity greater than or equal to 85% of your VO2 max. Clinical trials found this in both recreational and elite, which they considered Olympic athletes. So what's that saying is when you get to a point where you are at or above 85% of your VO2 max, you're going to start seeing like fat oxidation rates get to or at zero in most of the research that we look at. So the thought process there then is that intensities of that 
or higher, you're looking at a situation where the body's just demanding uh, basically all carbohydrate and fat oxidation is a non-contributor at that point. So this study wants to kind of look at that and further test that theory with subjects who are actually on a low carbohydrate diet for what they end up having roughly four weeks or a month. They also go on to state that a growing body of evidence suggests there may be more to this. And when studying extended habituation to a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, we see a shift of the crossover set point in favor of greater fat oxidation, even at much higher intensities of uh, greater than 85% VO2 max and dramatically increases the rates of peak fat oxidation in moderate intensities, which they have at 60% VO2 max. So just a quick note here, when they talk about the crossover point, what they mean by that is the crossover point is essentially this point in which if you're looking at the physiological changes on like, say a, uh, if you're hooked to a metabolic heart, essentially, and you're looking at the physiological changes as you increase pace, the crossover point would be this point where your body would begin to command the majority of its energy from carbohydrate. So you hit this greater than 50% energy requirement from carbohydrate. So this study is saying there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that there may be, may be more to this in the sense that this crossover point can essentially be shifted over further, meaning that you can burn a higher percentage of fat at higher intensities than we maybe otherwise thought previously. So why is that important? If you can shift the crossover point further along the intensity spectrum, you can command more energy that's demanded from fat than what we were thinking otherwise, which in turn will preserve glycogen. And so in theory, giving you more available glycogen at the end of the event or a workout, or the flexibility to complete a given event or workout with less exogenous fuel needs. So either more endogenous glycogen available to you at the end, or not needing to introduce exogenous glycogen sources during the event to the degree that you maybe would have to, if that crossover point was shifted at lower intensities is essentially what they're looking at with that. They did look at some just health and disease implications of dietary choices, which is kind of interesting in the sense that they used endurance athletes. So as that is a population being examined, you have a situation where like some of these lifestyle changes is going to be unique to somebody or maybe a little more unique to someone who actually practices endurance, because that's one more variable that would be uh, similar to that person versus if this study was done on say like power lifters or sedentary people or something like that. So this paper goes on to, to state that there are multiple studies that have illustrated some beneficial shifts in things like glucose, insulin, hemoglobin, A1C or HbA1c inflammation and oxidative stress biomarkers, along with proposed alterations in diabetes, cancer, neurological, and other disease clinical outcomes resulting from low carb, high fat diets, and the resulting metabolite shifts. While there is evidence for optimism here, some dating back to over a century, there has been a call for more high quality evidence. So essentially what they're saying is there is some evidence suggesting that these things can potentially be improved with a dietary alteration towards a low carb or high fat. We need more research to actually show that. Uh, one reason there is often a call for those sort of things is because like this research is not necessarily teasing out all the different things that could be 
the reason for that. So an example that that oftentimes comes up is this weight loss on the outcomes. So an example that would be somebody goes on a low carbohydrate diet, they improve all those things I mentioned before, but they also lost a bunch of weight. So then people ask, was it the actual low carbohydrate diet or the fact that they lost weight that led to that improvement? One thing that oftentimes gets gets followed up asked is like, well, could they have done a completely different diet, still lost weight and had that same outcome? which is what I think we see a lot of times in the research to date and for these, these, these type of findings. So this study also wanted to take a look at just some markers that would suggest that independent of weight loss, so either equivalent weight loss on two different diets or no weight loss at all, still having differences, uh, which is cool that they're going to control for that or try to control for that. Um, another thing they're looking at here is performance and substrate oxidation during exercise, where other targets examined to go along with the above health markers. Trials for each approach lasted 31 days. So they did a, a pretty long test on each of these. And they also had a two-week washout period between where the participants' diets were not regulated and they just allowed them kind of reset before they switched over to the other diet. So there wasn't essentially what you would consider like this bleed over effect from one diet into the next, where if they had done like, say the high fat diet, then went straight into the high carb or vice versa, you may see some lingering effects of one diet or the other into the next one. But with that two week washout period, you can basically assume that that wasn't going to be the case in, in, in this particular study. Also parts of the study that are kind of worth noting is participant performance tests included a one mile time trial and a six by 800 meter repeat protocol. Both were done at the beginning and end of the 31 day period. So they basically, they did, uh, they did some testing to kind of determine where the participants biomarkers were at. And then they had them do the one mile time trial and the six by 800 repeats before and after each diet protocol. So that gave them kind of an opportunity to assess whether there were any changes in the, their fitness, uh, from the dietary changes because they also had maintenance as the training regimen between. So they weren't using, they weren't taking these athletes and having them try to improve their fitness between these tests. They had them continuing a protocol in which would maintain their current fitness between these tests. Demographics of the participants were 30 to 50 year old males, completion of a one mile run in a, under seven minutes was another requirement running greater than 20 miles per week was another requirement and then greater than two years of running experience and also they wanted the participants to be currently consuming a carbohydrate diet greater than 50 percent of calories they excluded some they, what exclusions to make sure that they didn't have anything in there that could potentially confound things were things like cigarette smoking metabolic or cardiovascular disease disease orthopedic musculoskeletal, neurological, and or any other medical conditions that prohibit exercise, psychiatric disorders, pharmaceutical drugs affecting measurement parameters, and subjects were asked to refrain from caffeine and alcohol consumption for 48 hours and racing or training for 24 hours before each performance test. So quite a few controls in there to try to make sure that the diet is going to be the thing that really reflects any changes that we're looking at here. The nutritional parameters of the studies were for the low-carb, high-fat group, they were going to be consuming, consuming roughly 50 grams of carbohydrate per day, 75 to 85% of their intake was going to come from fat, 15 to 20% from protein. 
the high carb, low fat group, we're going to be consuming 60 to 65% carbohydrate, 20% fat, 15 to 20% from protein. The low carb group was advised to salt to taste and add an additional one to two grams per day of sodium from bullion cubes or homemade broth. So this is important too, because there's been some criticism on previous performance tests when we're looking at ketogenic diets or low carbohydrate diets comparatively, when they don't add extra electrolytes or sodium to the diets of the low carb group, because that could potentially create a performance alteration or a drop in performance that's more directly related to the extra loss of that versus the actual macronutrient shifts they're doing. So this test looked to make sure that that wouldn't be something that kind of came in and impacted the results versus the actual reduction of carbohydrate. The training protocol, they recorded this by mode, duration, and intensity of each workout during the study. Training load was calculated by a rate of perceived exertion, time session duration in minutes, body mass and composition. They used a medical scale and electric impedance technique for body composition. Maximal exercise test was used to acquire subjects VO2 max and heart rate values before. Uh, they also used incremental tests to exhaustion with this. So essentially what they did in order to gather that day was they did a three-minute treadmill walk at self-selected speed and 0% incline, a three-minute run at eight to 13 kilometers per hour on a 0% incline, and the pace within that was determined by the subject's comfort level. And then they did a grade increase by two and a half percent every two minutes while the speed was held constant on the treadmill. The subject would continue until they reported exhaustion. Their highest VO2 max was recorded on the final 30 seconds uh, recorded as the subject's VO2 max score. So they basically just did a ramp test where they kept that pace, that comfortable pace, but added incline every couple minutes until the subject tapped out. And when the subject tapped out, they took that last 30 seconds and looked at their peak VO2 max over the course of those 30 seconds to use as their score. So um, that was kind of their starting study to make sure they had those baseline parameters in place before they started implementing any of the dietary changes to uh, the subjects. Like I said before, the test included a one mile time trial. The parameters for that were at least a three, three hours post meal. So meaning they hadn't eaten anything in three hours, at least the treadmill was set at a 1% incline. They did five minutes at 45% of their VO2 max, which they calculated from that test that they did prior. Then they did five minutes at 65% VO2 max, a five minute rest. And then they had a rolling start for 30 seconds at approximately 80% their VO2 max. And then the subject freely adjusted speed with no knowledge of time or speed. The subject verbally informed of the distance every 200 meter intervals, and the subject was instructed to run as fast as possible. So essentially, the subject wasn't told their speed. They weren't told anything other than whenever they hit a 200 meter interval, and they could increase or decrease the treadmill speed as they felt they needed to, to be able to sustain what they were doing um, for that one mile time trial. For the 800 meter repeats, the six by 800, protocol is at least three hours post-meal. So again, they wanted to have no food within three hours of that test. Uh, it was done on a treadmill. They did a 10-minute self-paced warm-up and then six by 800-meter sprints followed by a three-minute passive recovery interval. And then the subjects were instructed to finish each 800-meter sprint as fast as possible. So giving it a thorough push. And then also no 800 meter performance feedback given to participant during the test. So they weren't given any, any information as like you're going this fast or you're this close or anything like that. 
All right. So after all that, what were some of the results that we saw from the study? Some of the health outcomes, uh, participants started each diet at a similar weight and body composition. So they had that controlled nicely. There were no significant treatment or interaction effects for weight or body composition during either the low carb, high fat, or high carb, low fat approach. Overall changes in weight and body composition on each diet were similar. They did notice some small changes in both uh, from a weight loss standpoint, but differences were non-significant, indicating that changes between diets were not due to weight loss differences in the diets. So that's important because of what I said before, if we had had a situation where the low carb diet participants lost a meaningful amount more weight than they did when they're on the, the high carb, then we could have a situation where we have to, or we, we'd have to appreciate that the weight loss could potentially have an impact of the performance. Uh, same if it had been weight gain or something like that. So both, both diets resulted in weight loss, but not in a significant difference, meaning that we can assume that that was pretty much the same situation happening throughout, uh, and not, not, not impacting the results in a meaningful way, like it would, if those were different. Uh, so what did we find out otherwise, uh, within that, those, those parameters, the low carb, high fat group, as you probably expect, increased blood ketones to greater than or equal to 0.5 millimoles throughout the intervention. So they were testing throughout that to make sure that they were, I guess, adhering to the diet more or less. And the report back was that all participants went on that low carbohydrate approach were, uh, you know, at or above 0.5 millimoles of blood ketones throughout that, that entire intervention phase, which would be just an indication that we can trust that they were truly in a state of ketosis and that any, any differences could be attributed to that. Like I said, body composition was monitored and there was no significant treatment or interaction effects to the body composition during the low carb or the high carb phases. Changes on either were similar, overall changes in weight and body composition on each diet were similar. Cardiovascular stuff they looked at. The low carb high fat group had a higher mean heart rate, higher fat oxidation rate, higher respiratory rate, and lower carbohydrate oxidation rate. So some specifics within that, the oxidation rates for fat oxidation within that low carbohydrate group had an average of 1.58 grams per minute, plus or minus 0.33 grams per minute. And the peak fat oxidation rates of 30% of the participants on the low carbohydrate diet actually had peak fat oxidation, it's greater than 1.85 grams per minute. And that ranged from 1.86 to 2.01 grams per minute, which is essentially the highest formally recorded in a study to the knowledge of the researchers here. And I mean, that's very high fat, fat oxidation rates. I 1.58 average makes sense to me. I remember when the faster study, which I was a participant in, I think my peak fat oxidation rates were like 0.56. So I would have fallen, fallen right in that mean number based on that. When you look at the parameters of this study from carbohydrate intake, I mean, these, these individuals were, you know, basically at 50 grams of carbohydrate, which is just going to be less than I normally have. So I would expect there to be participants here that would be producing higher fat oxidation rates than I would. And when you look at some of that, it is kind of interesting that they broke down the subject data to some degree where you have that kind of mean, but you also can look at a percentage of that. So roughly 30% of them, three out of 10 of them produced, you know, this, this 
this heightened fat oxidation result of over 1.85 grams per minute and then up to with the highest one being 2.01 grams per minute. Uh, the mean carb oxidation rates dropped pretty significantly with the uh, low carbohydrate individuals or the individuals when they were on the low carbohydrate diet by about 54%. So it went down 1.69 plus or minus 0.57 grams per minute. So in short, they were using less carbs and more fat across those intensities. Uh, so as that fat oxidation went up, their utilization of carbohydrates went down, which I think we'd expect to see some other cardiovascular changes. The high fat, low carb group had higher total cholesterol and LDLC concentrations post diet. So when you looked at their cardiovascular uh, cholesterol scores or lipid profiles, their cholesterol and their LDLC concentrations were higher post that 31 days. Um, another metric glycemic control, which they measured with a continuous glucose monitor and took results every 15 minutes, essentially it, the basically all glycemic parameters improved on the low carb, high fat diet. So you kind of have this, this dual effect happening where their lipid, their lipid panels increased, their cholesterol increased, but then their blood sugar, their glycemic control improved. Uh, so average glucose was significantly lower during the low carbohydrate, high fats, and it started at day eight. So essentially what you saw is by day eight, the changes in their glycemic parameters were noticeable. And then those changes remained and stayed in effect throughout the remainder of that 31 day protocol. Peak fat oxidation rates on the low carb, high fat were also associated with higher cholesterol, demonstrating a potential interaction between oxidation rates and global lipid metabolism. So basically what they're saying there is the subjects that had the highest fat oxidation rates also reported the higher cholesterol um, scores. So there seems to be some association there where like, if, when you look at any of the individuals on the when they were on the high fat protocol, the further you were on those higher fat oxidation rates, the further your lipid panel also changed towards having higher cholesterol there. Other interesting things that were kind of reported there, the 30% of subjects that had the mean and median glucose uh, above 100 milligrams per deciliter throughout the high carb, low fat treatment. So essentially three out of 10 individuals on that high carbohydrate did it ended up with a mean glucose score greater than what would be reported as pre-diabetic, essentially greater than hundred milligrams per deciliter. Um, of those subjects, the largest responders to the low carb, high fat diet was, uh, the, those subjects. So those subjects that had the highest, um, glycemic response to the high carb diet also had the highest fat oxidation rates when they switched to the low fat diet. So I'm sorry, the high fat diet. So you had this interaction where the ones that responded more quickly or more abruptly to the high carbohydrate diet also responded more, more quickly or aggressively to the low carbohydrate diet with that. So just interesting notes, I guess, when it comes to performance, and this is one that I think a lot of people were interested in, maybe the main focus of the study was when they looked at performance with that one mile time trial and that six by 800 repeat protocol, there was no significant difference between the low carb, high fat group and the high fat, low carb groups during 
both the one mile time trial and the six by 800 meter intervals. Some key points that they looked at for that were that essentially just a summary of kind of what I went through is a 30, 31 days on each diet, reduced equivalent fasting insulin, HSCRP and HbA1c with elevated total low density lipoprotein and high density cholesterol on the low carb, high fat, low carb, high fat, consistently reduced glucose levels and variability with a large inverse relationship observed between mean glucose on high carb, low fat, and the percentage changed in mean glucose when switching to the low carb, high fat. So in other words, 30% of those subjects who had 31 day mean median fasting glucose of above hundred milligrams per deciliter on the high carb, low fat diet were also the largest responders, uh, to the glycemic change over diet and peak fat oxidation rates when the carbohydrate restriction was put in place. Other interesting, uh, summary notes is athletes achieved the highest rates of fat oxidation reported and increasing when at 86.4 plus or minus 6.24% of their VO2 max, where historically fat oxidation should be approaching zero in previous studies and with moderate to high carb athletes. So we see this, like I said before, this sort of shifting in where we start to see this, uh, this complete turn towards carbohydrate need within, within a certain intensity. So what does all this mean? What I think is interesting about this is it really highlights on this study that for any one intensity session. So if you were to go out and do like an all out mile or do this six by 800 meter interval protocol, or just like essentially short intervals, you're likely not going to see a, a drop in performance. If you're on a low carbohydrate or even ketogenic diet protocol, the thing that this study doesn't really highlight, and it's not the study's fault. It's just a whole nother protocol that would have to be put in place and likely one that would make this much more difficult to do and much more difficult to fund would be how does this actually play out in the real world when we're not looking at essentially a single workout, but looking at a series of workouts done over the course of an entire training block or entire training plan. So what do I mean by that? If you think of just like an endurance training protocol when you're doing speed work, when you're in that phase of training, it's not uncommon at all that you're going to see someone doing two speed work sessions per week and maybe a long run development. So you'll see protocols safely done up to around 20% of the work done at speed at moderate high intensity. So with speed work in there, which is going to be a little bit of a different environment when repeated week after week. So if I had to guess my assumption would be if they took these subjects and put them on, say, a nine-week study and had them do two or three blocks of training in there that each had what I just described, up to 20% intensity or speed work at intensities of moderate to high throughout the course of that week, and they were doing a protocol where you're doing at least two speed sessions and a long-run development every week. I think you would start to see some differences in performance from that ketogenic group as you got further into that protocol versus the, what we saw in this study where they just looked at essentially workouts in isolation. So 
what does that mean? That means like those, what I think would maybe happen is those ketogenic athletes, maybe week one, they see no difference. They're just smooth sailing. But by week two, week three, I think we probably start seeing some differences there. I don't know that that would be the case for every participant. I think that would probably be what we would see on average though. So if you're looking at it from a population level standpoint, that would be my guess. So I think a, a cool follow-up study would be to look at that, look at a more extended kind of real life situation of um, kind of having that actual training plan in place that people are actually going to implement. Now, there is a caveat to that as well. Not everyone's going to train that way, nor should everyone train that way. That is just a protocol that's commonly used with endurance athletes. There are other plans, and there's one specifically that I think would fit quite nicely with this dietary protocol if someone said, hey, I really enjoy a ketogenic diet. I'm not planning on changing it. I'm doing it for a variety of reasons, and you know, performance is just one thing I focus on, or maybe performance isn't something you focus on. The, the, the training program that would fit this the best, in my opinion, would be like a maximum aerobic function training strategy, which is an approach where you push up to essentially what is your aerobic threshold or the top end of what you consider like the easy category before you would cross into a moderate intensity. And you sort of come up to that as often as you can tolerate and still recover from and just build on that sometimes for years. And that protocol is going to um, keep your workout intensities below a point in which you're likely going to demand the carbohydrate intake that would potentially uh, be needed to optimize performance in say like a professional endurance athlete following a more training program I described before. So an example that would be like you stick to that program and then you wouldn't have to be like super rigid with it as, as you see with most maximum aerobic function training programs, these people aren't just out there doing that day in, day out every day for the rest of their lives. They're oftentimes maybe doing an impromptu speed workout every once in a while when they feel really good, when they want to test their fitness. A lot of times they're going to be doing this through an event. They'll jump into like a race or something like that. And they'll sort of get some bouts of speed work introduced into their lifestyle through that. I think that sort of strategy would probably give enough time between sessions to uh, essentially put you in a position where maybe this isn't a, isn't a meaningful difference, especially given enough time to adapt and get comfortable with the dietary practices. Um, there's also going to be a lot of other variables to consider too. So when we think of like the performance side of the equation, oftentimes we're looking at just that variable. And oftentimes we're looking at people with very controlled lifestyles to begin with. So if you think of like a professional athlete where they've likely checked all the other boxes in terms of optimizing these other variables, and then we can see the we can see the differences in performances in them much clearer because any change to their very controlled lifestyle is going to stick out a lot more than say the average person who has a lot of extra variables that are unrelated to performance that could potentially be improved or 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 harmed by a dietary implementation. So the other thing I always like to mention with this is like for individuals who have found that a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet is a way of eating that they really enjoy feeds into a lot of positives in their life and potentially improvements in those variables are going to be promote 
a larger performance gain than whatever deficits we're going to get purely from the physiological differences from your body oxidizing carbohydrates versus fats too. So this is, that's very much at the individual level. When we get to that point, when you're looking at someone's lifestyle and the very specific things that kind of go into that. Another thing to consider here with that too, is if we do go the route of saying, let's extend this study out through a more comprehensive look at what a typical endurance athlete may be doing over the course of weeks or months would be this study very much does look at two polar ends of the spectrum in the sense that the low carbohydrate group wasn't just low carb in the general sense. They were basically strict ketogenic. When you look at the grams of carbohydrate per day that they were consuming versus everything in between what you're going to get at a more highly restrictive diet when it comes to carbohydrate compared to a moderate to higher carbohydrate diet. So, you know, take me for example, I follow a low carbohydrate diet, but I'm only phasing in what most would be considered a strict ketogenic diet during certain phases of the year versus doing that all year long. There are other parts of the year where, although I'm still consuming the majority of my macronutrients from fat and the minority of them from carbohydrates, I'm not at a, what people would consider a ketogenic low gram of carbohydrate per day standpoint. So I think it would also be interesting to see, is there a variance between say someone who's on like say a strict ketogenic diet, a higher or moderate carbohydrate diet, and then also someone who's still be considered by most as low carbohydrate. Let's just say, for example, 20% of their intake from carbohydrate, 60% from fat, 20% from protein. Is there any differences in there too, in, in terms of how this maybe plays out over time when you are introducing a variety of more workouts in a longer timeline within a more traditional training style? That study, I put the link. I mean, this it's got a lot of details, a lot of information in it. So I kind of did an overview summary of it. There's more in it if you want to kind of comb through it yourself and see what you think see if there's other things in there that i didn't talk about that are interesting to you i will have a link to that study in the show notes so if you're interested you can head there click on that and give it a thorough reading if you're interested but otherwise thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some 
running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 